Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Joel and I'm here with Booktopian Rob and author Brie Lee to talk about her new book, Who Gets to Be Smart? Thanks so much for joining us, Brie. Thank you for having me again. I'm very grateful. Very exciting to have you here. Um, so I just wanted to start with a very general question about, you know, how did this project get started? What drew you to it? Mm. Very much um, looking back, you know, with hindsight, it's more obvious that it started the moment my friend, my brilliant friend Damien told me that he had won a Rhodes scholarship, um, which if you sort of went through the kind of schooling system that Damien and I did, which is just your sort of standard Brisbane private school, a Rhodes scholarship is one of the few sort of apexes, like an absolute pinnacle of success and academic achievement. Uh, and Damien got one of these incredible scholarships. Uh, and I just remember the moment he told me, of course, I was absolutely thrilled for him. It was fantastic news. I'm very proud of my friend. Uh, but I also felt like I got punched in the gut in terms of um, just having this moment of, of feeling wounded that he was a winner and I was a loser. Um, and also just the, the rightness of that. I remember thinking, of course, of course he got this thing. Of course, this is the type of thing that I would never get, etc. Um, and I think I am just the kind of person who, who writes. <laughs> and so anytime I experience a punch in the gut, I just sort of sit with it and I think, why? Why am I having this extreme response? Like, why am I experiencing an, an emotional response to something like this? Um, and so I asked my friend Damien if I could go and visit him over in Oxford University. Um, and he very graciously, you know, had me as his guest and took me off these tours of Rhodes House, but also Oxford more generally. And I just started digging. I sort of started scratching at it. Um, and the more I found out about Cecil Rhodes and the history and legacy of the Rhodes scholarships, um, the more sort of disgusted I was um, by them. But then what really blossomed was realising just how much the rest of Oxford and then how much Australia as Australian universities as a sort of good little colonial outpost um, was still also just peddling the same things that they are they're proud of and that they uh, refer to. Um, and basically once I started, once I started the scratching, um, I couldn't stop. And then yeah. it just really blew out into um, – I wanted to ask this question of, you know, yeah, who gets to be smart? And it, I couldn't do that without considering about a dozen different things, which is why the book ended up being these sort of, um, I guess, what am I calling it? Cumulative chronological essays. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a very I, – I like – I love this type of nonfiction mm. that just feels very like deep dive into specific little mini topics – um, but it feels to me like the rubber really hits the road in that point at the end of that in introductory chapter with Damien, your friend that you clearly used to beat yourself with. <laughs> we all very have true. one of those. Yes, we They're not all road scholars, but... <laughs> <laughs> yes, very true. But when you, at a certain point you say, you know, we... Um, what would, you know, 50 years ago, um, he said, oh, I would have been in jail and you wouldn't have been allowed to be here. Mm. And then at the end of that chapter, you say, um, so who is well, in jail and not allowed to be here now? Mm, exactly. And I feel like that's that feels to me like the jumping off point for the whole concept, even though it's much bigger than that. So did you, how, how, did it all just come out of that Oxford, did, 
Was that really the actual instigating? Very much so. Yeah, yeah. that's amazing. Absolutely. Very personal in a lot yes. of ways. Yes, yes. Um, and it worked out quite organically. I think it worked out well like that because um, the book goes to very sort of philosophical and moral big unruly questions but I think for the reader it's very helpful to have a, f a sort of preliminary first chapter or essay be that personal to sort of like the sense I had when I certainly when I was editing and like shaping and honing it um, was that I as the sort of protagonist and also the person writing the work I wanted to be the guide and so um, it did work out really organically and I, I hope well that, that that first essay feels like the moment when I'm like taking the reader's hand. Like this is where I started as well when I started reading about all this stuff. These were the original ideas that I got wrong too. Now come with me on this journey of figuring out how fucked it all is. <laughs> it seems to be a journey where it rolls into a sort of cumulative effect of more and more layers of stuff and there's a sort of a rising emotion mm. with that. Yeah, that's what that was how I felt living it and then the other very organic thing um, was that it culminated in the year that was 2020. Um, so when I first started I thought this would I thought this project it was going to be called Brains and it was going to be the length the same length as Beauty was about 25 to 30,000 words and they were going to be sort of sister essays. Um, but as I started that scratching process, I realised the, the questions I felt it was necessary to ask needed a full-length treatment. Um, and then I was at that stage with reckoning and grappling with the fact that it would be a full-length book um, at the beginning of 2020. And then what started happening in Australia with, with the government's response to COVID, uh, the way it you know, changed the JobKeeper requirements three times explicitly to exclude universities and then what happened with all the statues and Black Lives Matter in terms of you know, um, the, the roads must fall movement is one of the biggest um, take down the statues movements. Mm. Um, and so it felt like, yeah, again, very organic that all of these questions really came to a head in 2020, which is sort of, you know, how it, how it finishes. It felt like it sort of amplified a lot of the problems that you had already sort of were, were already mm. talking about. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's how I that's how I felt reading the news every morning. Um, the book ended up being like 5,000 words extra long just because so much happened yeah. in the few months before my manuscript was due. Yeah. Another, another interesting... Um, so through line through these essays is um, your reading of Virginia Woolf's uh, Room of Her Own. Mm. A Room of One's Own. One's yeah. Own. Yep. Oh, my God. I knew I was going to get that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> this is what happens when Everyone I knows what you're talking down. about. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the, especially the, the, the stream of gold and silver. Mm. Um, can you tell us a bit about how – what you're talking about in that in with that phrase, the mm. stream of gold and silver. Yeah, the stream of gold and silver is um, so to take it back. Something that was um, really sort of un almost uncannily fortuitous was that the first time I had ever read that essay. Um, well, a room of one's own is is sort of two essays that Wolf delivered as speeches, which are then published as sort of connected essays. Uh, the first time I ever read them was when I was um, visiting Damien on this tour in Oxford, and I didn't realise that that that, uh, that Wolf's reflections that she's penning them when she's at what she refers to as Oxbridge, which is just sort of Oxford, Cambridge, 
combined because um, they have all the same pros and cons. Um, and it was, yeah, really uncanny reading her writing pretty much exactly where I was at the time. And then going on a tour and seeing the types of buildings and the types of institutions that she was seeing and also critiquing at exactly the same time. And one of the things she talks about that really rung true for me was this stream of silver and gold. And so she talks about how, um, you know, originally it was the like the sort of the monarchs and the and the landed gentry who were funding education to be available specifically basically for their offspring, and then it turned into the the coffers of the merchants. So you have this sort of growing merchant class who are still going and making money and then reinvesting that money into people who look and sound like them, and just that sort of cyclical nature and that cyclical. Um, sort of that it's um, unless there is somebody else coming in stopping that from happening, like how naturally that will happen, that people will only go on to fund and help people who look and sound like them. Um, And I just found that not (laughs) that much had changed when I started researching around the way those streams of silver and gold still fund um, the same sort of types of people even in Australia and that it's that's the case in my opinion for early childhood learning and primary and high school and also universities. It just goes from the same people to the same people. Yeah, and it feels almost like a closed system in a lot of ways. It is, yes, mm. very much so. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other aspect of that that I thought was really interesting and that, again, you, is a through line through all these essays is what we were talking about earlier, the idea that... Um, these these right sort of people mm. who are the beneficiaries of these types of institutions ha- have a sort of inbuilt right to believe in themselves mm. and how the system props up that right to believe in themselves. And when it's threatened, that's when they get defensive. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about how that concept came about? And yeah, I'm just really interested in why, like what, it's called like the defensive spark. You know, when people um, get so wounded and then, quite vitriolic in their defensiveness when ideas around like legacy or or questioning (laughs) the effect of unbridled intergenerational wealth. Like when you question those things, why some people get so like nasty in response and also why there is such a terribly nasty response to um, just sort of growing progressive ideas and dialogue in the public space. Um, And there was this line that Wolf had in one sort of small part that I really took and um, used a lot and extrapolated and is now informs a lot of the way I understand the way I read um, sort of public discourse at all, is that these people get defensive because somebody has offended against their right to believe in themselves. And that basically, if you come from the dominant in any sort of way or sense in terms of parts of your identity, you are used to seeing everywhere around you your sort of identity and and your sort of – that you deserve your achievements and those are like reflected back upon you. And it is so rare that you have any of your – any facets of your identity challenged, let alone somebody questioning your belief in meritocracy. You know, the people who believe Australia is a meritocracy are the ones who are doing great. Uh, because it's very <laughs> confronting for them to think about what it looks like if they don't quote unquote deserve more than others. Because no one's saying like 
it's it's confronting when people um, have to sit with the fact that somebody else who has a lot less than them may have worked just as hard. Mm. Because then what does it mean about tax? What does it mean about access to institutions? What does it mean about just um, sharing and, and these ideas of deserving and merit that, um, yeah, I just I, – I was already a bit suspicious of, but I think it would be safe to say I now – believe is almost a complete farce (laughs) (laughs) and just and for like bringing it back to the personal is is um that I have always been incredibly grateful for my education um but researching for and working on this book makes me realize um just what a product I am of that system and how the level of education I now have having done undergraduate and then postgraduate qualifications was almost predestined the level of income I now make almost predestined the suburb I now live in almost predestined um it's not that I don't work hard it's just that I am also capable of understanding that people who have less than I do also work really really hard that just because I have does not mean I deserve more than them. Yeah, it's almost as if that the concept of privilege itself is an affront. Yes, exactly. Um, and I, I have found that with people that I've spoken to about this kind of thing. It is all, always seems to be privileged and white people who are the ones denying that privilege exists and denying or and insisting that they are colorblind. Yes, and that's why... They don't notice. Exactly, and that's why so many of these issues actually came to a head in 2020 because of the Black Lives Matter movement hitting mainstream. Um, You know, obviously, in the Australian context specifically, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders have been having that conversation for a very long time. But undeniably, in 2020, it, like, hit the sort of public mass level of consciousness. And it was what I described was basically a nationwide defensive spark. You had an entire country who was very upset that somebody had offended against its right to believe in itself. Absolutely. And that seems to be at the core of the irritation with Australia Day and mm. other, all those other things where we're, that are very recent developments in Australian history, but we get very upset at the idea. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Um, I found the chapter on intelligence totally fascinating and I imagine quite difficult to write. Yes. <laughs> Yes, very. <laughs> uh, I loved, though, your jumping off point into that chapter, which was, um, I th- I, you, correct me if I'm wrong, that this, this, when you were at the Arbia Awards and oh, Davina yeah. Bell won yes. the There Are Different Ways to Be Smart, which is a book that, uh, at Booktopia, we love that book. Yeah, but I uh, love that but, book too. Yeah, like, yeah. And it's, but it's such, I had never actually thought about that as mm. a concept, the idea that we are so focused on the idea of intelligence being so good that we will take other qualities that don't necessarily have anything to do with intelligence and say that they're kinds of intelligence in order to hold them up. Yep. That's that's is that a correct That cor- is exactly it. Yeah. Tell us about tell <laughs> us about that. <laughs> well, that was the thing is like so the moment and that is a beautiful book. Um Davina Bell and Alison Colpoise, I think is mm. um yep. Uh Lovely, wonderful. Um, I just remember being at the Arbia Awards that year and um, Davina in her acceptance speech sort of made this throwaway comment that this book, which is called, um, I think it's called All the Ways to be Smart and it's for children, a beautiful illustrated book, um, that it was based on what she had now learned were faulty research findings. Um, And so that just piqued my curiosity because it's a book about like all the ways to be smart that she was sort of saying wasn't – 
accurate or something. She was um, backing away from yes. as she won the award for <laughs> Yes, it. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I feel like it was natural that my sort of curiosity was piqued when I was, you know, very much um, tits deep in research for a book about what I thought was going to be called brains. Um, anyway, so then I started going and looking and I found out that basically that is this very, very popular and has, just seems to have really staying power, this idea that, um, that there are many different types of intelligence. Um, and... Um, that was sort of first published and written about in English by a guy called Howard Cardner. Um, And he had all of these um, categories that he had created that he – it was a taxonomy of what he defined as different types of intelligence. And so um, you had musical rhythmic was a type of intelligence and also um, bodily kinesthetic I think was one, which is sort of, you know, hand-eye coordination and stuff. Um, And my issue with that is like what you – what you sort of were asking about in the question, which is like one of the um, beautiful illustrations in the book is like um, smartness is, um, you know, being kind to someone when they're sad, you know, and there's this gorgeous illustration of um, a boy giving a crying dinosaur a flower. And it's like, why? The thing that cuts me is what we are really communicating to children when we don't say it's good to be kind, full stop, we say it's good to be kind because that's a type of smart. Like why can't why does there have to be different ways to be smart? Why can't there just be different ways to be? And what does it tell us about what we are sort of accidentally and implicitly communicating to children with everything we do with them, but in particular sort of educational tools and educational institutions, if the way we explain interpersonal skills to them as being valuable is because it's a type of being intelligent it's a type of being smart why it just comes back to this focus on intelligence as somehow being a moral good and I think it comes back to a um just a lot of pressure that we put on on young people um that is I don't know it's 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 not how I would choose for us to sort of en masse talk to young people about what behaviors and attitudes and priorities we, we want them and hope for them to have. Yeah, and it sort of highlights the complications around the idea of intelligence, the type of intelligence you're talking about, which mm. I guess is G. Oh, yeah. So, uh, oh God, how General do we intelligence. Yes. The, this idea that there's this sort of inherent quality, which is which may be affected by environmental factors of all different kinds, but it's essentially something that we can't affect very much. Mm. We, yeah. we have, and then we have to live with it. We don't tend to tell people that they need to work really hard at being pretty or work really hard at other personality traits that they don't have any uh, ability to change. But there is a weird way in which the culture wants people to be smart regardless of your natural abilities. Right? Mm. Yeah, I would Is that I a feel cr- like... No, it's... it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> so there's like no way that we can start talking about G without this becoming an 80 minute psychology <laughs> science podcast. Um, all I would say is that this concept of G, which is expressed as a lowercase italicized G, um, which is, it has been replicated numerous, numerous times. It's not a controversial um, thing that exists, but there is a lot of controversy about what it represents. Um, the quickest way I can try and explain it, um, and and this is a one of the two sort of schools of thought about G, 
is that in the same way um, you can have um, different health factors in your body have sort of correlate. So people with um, healthy blood pressure may also have a healthier lung capacity, may also have, um, you know, all that there is a sort of general level of health that correlates between all the different incredibly complex parts of the body. It has also been pretty much conclusively proven that people score at approximately the same level across most different types of quote-unquote intelligence tests. And so that is what Alison Bell was referring to. Um, sorry, Davina Bell, not when Alison Colpoise. Davina, that's what Davina Bell was referring to when she said that this idea of that there are lots of ways to be smart has sort of been disproven because the existence of G sort of shows that actually if you score incredibly high or incredibly low on a couple of different types of tests, that's, that's pretty much how you will score on all of them. And one of the reasons which I talk about in the book that I think people are very uncomfortable about the concept of G existing, um, and I don't, for the record, I do not believe G is intelligence. I believe intelligence is a completely cultural concept. G measures a kind of like... Uh, it's 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 almost like um, an energy level that your your brain can function in in cognitive space um, is the way I think it's better to understand it. Anyway, people find that confronting because you can't really change it. Mm. You, you know, you can't. There's not a lot you can do once you are an adult. Um, you know, p young children um, who get adopted into significantly higher socioeconomic families experience an increase in their IQ and G testing. And we know that when you are in those sort of crucial years of development, that it can be something as simple as if you are getting really nutritious food and are in a safe place with loving touch, like all of those things that help all of your areas, you know, of psychological and cognitive development, that all helps. But once you're an adult, your G is pretty much sort of stable across your life um, and people in my experience in particular Australians who are so focused on um, just aspirational these aspirational ideas and, and and the aspiration of the middle class don't like the idea that they have a G and that it is what it is mm. well and it's very it's been misused a lot yes. throughout history different Hugely. concepts of of G expressed in different ways and, and is still very, very poorly understood, right? Yes, so yes. I think it's one of the things you dive into quite deeply, so I don't want to simplify things for people listening yes. who are angrily saying, but what about white supremacists? Um, that is, I would say, the va very valid, 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 valid reason to always be terrified of anyone talking mm. about G um, mm. because it is something that has been replicated across studies and results in a score and History tells us that every single time anyone has been able to measure anything to do with intelligence, eugenicists appear immediately and white supremacy appears immediately. Mm. Um, do you have another question, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> I, I realise I'm just keep yeah, going yeah. and going because I'm just very... Yes, <laughs> let me get into the conversation. Um, yeah, look, there's, there's, it's um, interesting... The, the idea that runs through the book as well is of um, the competition of the privilege exists when some people can win and some people mm. can lose and you can't have an exclusive school if you don't exclude. Mm. So uh, that's, that's an interesting idea because we basically not just empower that to happen as a society but we 
both sides can kind of prop that up. Mm. I spent the weekend with some relatives who have come from a very working class background and they don't have university education and they're like looking at me going, you went to university and you live in some crappy little place <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, pay the rent yeah. <laughs> and the joke's on yeah. you and look at my big house and my boat. Um, and I'm like, yeah, okay. But, but part of it is well, how are we valuing what we're getting out of life? You talk about how in your book how every year since you started education your life has gotten better. And you're still in the educational um, sphere. Um, I wonder about the value of that that we put into that situation and that other people choose to see or not see. Mm. Um, because my relatives were sort of going, I devalue the idea of education because it gave me, I've got all this stuff that you don't have which then brought me to talking about, well, is it about stuff or is it about meaning of life and, and using your brain and all that kind of stuff. So I'm interested in the idea of um, intelligence and reward that comes up a lot in, in the book, the idea of the, pot, the pots, the, the, the ornamental rewards, pots. the ornamental mm, pots. The ornamental pots, yes. So I'm just wondering if you can, can talk about the ornamental pots and whether they're a real thing or something that we have empowered? Oh, that's a very good question. So the ornamental pots is another line, um, not a throw, you know, Wolf would never throw away a line, um, uh, <laughs> but it is an, another sort of small line from um, A Room of One's Own, which I took and really latched onto and, and uh, rewrote into many different places. And it's this idea that... Um, the academy, sort of capital A, which when I say it, I mean, you know, these institutions and these publications and these periodicals and these professorships and these scholarships, like that whole, all of those sort of mechanisms working together, the academy, um, that it's just sort of this um, f farce and that everyone is uh, in competition to figure out a way to objectively measure something like brains or intelligence and then uh, figure out who is at the top and give them a highly ornamental pot, which they can then take home and put on their mantelpiece. The um, dig being that that is like, so what? Just yeah. the, the uselessness, the absurdity of that entire enterprise and how incredibly like funded and stressful and involved and all of these institutions and mechanisms that are set up to support us all together figuring out who gets the annual ornamental pot for any given whatever subject pursuit etc um i think it's very difficult for me to answer because i am well no here's a specific example the the, the the single subject at school that i am most grateful for was english extension i did it for one year and it was the first time I was ever exposed to what I now understand as philosophy. Um, and it was the first time I was ever encouraged to not necessarily criticize, but critique the canon and ask questions about what is the meaning, what is the intended meaning of a text compared to what I read from a text and how do we find language to describe when there's a gap between those two things, all of that. I would say that, that doing that subject at high school, like sort of 
changed the trajectory of my life as a reader, certainly, and now I'm a writer, so it makes sense that it changed my trajectory as a professional. And I did the second, I was the second worst student in that class. Um, and I knew that because they posted the results up publicly for us all to see. Uh, and it was very embarrassing, obviously. Um, but like it, I think it is, I've already kind of answered the question about the ornamental pots in terms of the year that Damien found out he got a Rhodes Scholarship, which is an ornamental pot full of cash. Um, I was gutted and wounded, you know, as I said, very happy for him and celebrated with him and for him. But um, that was, I started writing this book at a time in my life when I did believe in the ornamental pots. And truly I can say sitting here now, I do not. When I was editing the book, um, I had to make sure I kept in the kind of naiveties and and embarrassing things in the first chapter, which I now don't believe in anymore. And I don't think that way. I wouldn't speak that way anymore, but I wanted it to, I wanted the reader to be able to come on that journey with me. And now when I come into contact with these institutions and people in the academy, and when I see these ornamental pots, my automatic response now is one of just sort of healthy, healthy skepticism or healthy suspicion rather than this automatic revering that I did before I just had until I researched and wrote this book I didn't realize how much I had outsourced my priorities to these places and that actually when I stopped and thought about it for a little while that's that's not what I believe that you can put numbers on these things that we should compare children to each other all the time etc so essentially that the the value that you place in education is inherent yeah. It doesn't require that external validation for it to be valuable. Yes, yes. I would agree with that. And then also um, this comes back to something else that the book raises because it happened in 2020 where there is a valid, I think, a healthy contest of ideas in terms of what a university is for and why then it should be funded in certain ways or set up in certain ways because some people – will say that a universe, like learning for learning's sake is enough. That, you know, that people who work in those institutions shouldn't have to point to like numerical outcomes to justify the importance of knowledge sharing and knowledge gaining and gathering. But um, there is also, I would say, a healthy counter argument to that, which is that for the people who need the most support and encouragement to access and attend university, things like graduate outcomes have a huge impact on yeah. whether or not they can justify the um, opportunity costs of being the first in their family or relocating to go to university. And that, um, I think that's a sort of identity crisis happening at universities and why vice chancellors get paid level, like financial salary packages like CEOs, even though supposedly they're at you know, kind of state-financed educational institutions. Like, what what's going on there? Is this a business or is it a school for adults? Like, what is the point of a university? Um, and there is certainly nowhere, nothing even close to agreeance at the moment. Mm-hmm. That's there's, there's a lot of representational issues in that, mm. insofar as whole parts of the community don't get represented if they don't have representatives within a decision-making um, system totally and and education is the beginning of that and enshrined within it Mm. so if you don't have working class people and you don't have people from um, poor areas 
going to these places, then decisions are made around them. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, and it's like, you know, not everyone has to want to go to uni, but my problem with using that as an excuse to not try and get those people to university is that when I counted nine out of the ten last prime ministers and every single mayor and lord mayor in power across the country had at least one undergraduate degree. Most of them had multiples, if not some postgraduate degree. And when you look at the sort of um, earning class, that kind of um, really comfortable middle to upper middle class, let alone like sort of actually high, higher upper class, they all went through universities at some stage or another. It, the university acts as this kind of funnel or bottleneck for that power and that is just comes back to this stream of silver and gold where it's like the people who go through those systems, uh, it is within, it's like suits their best interests for them to close that door behind them essentially because the value of what they have um, is the value of their ornamental pots is because they are exclusive. And so the reason a Rhodes Scholarship is so special is because so few people get it. Mm. And we haven't even talked about the Ramsey Centre for Western <laughs> Civilization, but there are these these scholarships, all kinds of them to varying degrees and even – the concept of an undergraduate degree in and of itself. If if a place or a thing that is supposedly about knowledge sharing actually gains a significant amount of its value from people it excludes, then we need to be asking some serious questions about that. And that's a huge problem with private schools, full stop as well. Yeah. I feel like there's so much that we could talk to yeah. you about. With this. Um, <laughs> Sorry, my answers are very long. No, don't be, don't be silly. It's <laughs> fantastic. I think it's really, really interesting. Um, I, on a lighter note, just mm. to, to sort of wrap things up. Um, <laughs> in beauty, you covered, I think, in some ways, your insecurities about um, beauty. Mm. And, and in this book, I feel like you're covering some of your insecurities or deal, using the book as a way to help deal with insecurities mm. about brains. Yeah. What, what's your next insecurity? <laughs> What are you going to ta tackle next? <laughs> uh, my, my next book is fiction. Uh, oh. And uh, it's fiction because it's a lot about love. And actually now um, I have honestly like no insecurity about love. I'm very madly in love and just got married to my partner and everything's awesome. Um, but – it's interesting you framed it around insecurities because <laughs> I don't mean to belittle. Yeah, this is in no, achievement. I've only just put this together. I'm psychoanalyzing. Yeah, you. yeah, you are. I'm in the chair. I'm in the chair. Um, <laughs> the the book and the novel uh, asks some questions about the sort of first year of a couple coming together and how it is basically a a, a collision of insecurities. I mm. suppose one of them and um, some of those being. Um, insecurities internal to the individuals um, but also um, just capital full stop I'm interested in how the housing market affects people falling in love I'm interested in how income insecurity affects people falling in love I'm interested in how this idea of love and 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 what love even is and how two people could possibly fall into it is affected by all kinds of um, 21st century modern problems that sounds fascinating. Nice. I can't wait to read it. Well, all your books seem to be great conversation starters. Ah, that's a, that's a huge compliment, Rob. Thank you very much. <laughs> so I, I look forward to that one because I'm sure that will start huge ones. Mm, well, it's, arguments. 
I don't think I am a good enough writer yet to to find actual real like non-fiction words for the love I feel. So we're doing it in fiction. <laughs> but not insecurity. <laughs> yeah, no. It's growth. It's growth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's growth. <laughs> it's growth. <laughs> Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us, Bree. Um, uh, you took quite a lot of time today to come and sign some books and uh, we really appreciate it. So for a limited time, you'll be able to get some signed copies of Who Gets to Be Smart by Bree Lee from booktopia.com.au. Um, and if you've missed out on that, then you can get the book from us anyway or from your local bookshop. Thank you so much for joining us and thanks again, Bree. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.